To make sure millions of people are getting paid on time and in compliance, ADP is staying on top of each new piece of legislation. So when it comes down to it, ADP isn't just a payroll and HR company. We're the company that helps you navigate complexity. Learn more at ADP.com. This is John Lauder, host of The Cheap Seats. Thanks for listening to the following broadcast on Public House Media. Welcome to a brand new episode of Caught Listening, the baseball podcast that goes beyond the white lines as we are here at the end of April 2020, what would have been the first full month of baseball. And we certainly hope everybody is staying safe. We hope they are staying healthy and that we are getting ready for baseball uh, here, hopefully in 2020. Now, many shows that you listen to, many podcasts that you subscribe to are probably at this point discussing ways to get baseball back and how Baseball might look following COVID-19. However, you've been listening to this show. You know that we're talking about more than just that. And today we're talking about uh, a man who passed away um, uh, in the last week who really was kind of the embodiment of a living legend and whose stories lay claim to one of the greatest, uh, in my opinion, baseball movies of all time. And we are very fortunate. We're talking about Steve uh, Dalkowski, who led Credence to Nuke Lelouch of Bull Durham. Uh, portrayed by Tim Robbins, uh, but he was so much more than that. And uh, a lot of people, what's great is, you know, um, they're learning about him now. It's unfortunate it's after his passing, but we are very fortunate to have a, a gentleman who spoke with him uh, a couple of times throughout his life and, and knows what his career was from a baseball standpoint. The former New York Times sports columnist, and uh, and I'm proud to say a fellow Hofstra University alum. Uh, I don't think it's it's uh, an understatement to say the legendary Mr. George Vesey is joining us, sir. We really do appreciate it. I'm a legend in my own mind, as the saying goes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, we yeah. really do. A, yeah. So, I, I wanna... so there is a, there is actually a Hofstra connection to Steve Dalkowski. Um, I was talking to my friend Jerry Rosenthal, who was mm-hmm. the all-Met Conference shortstop back when Hofstra belonged to a really great conference in the metropolitan area, St. John's, mm-hmm. and et cetera. And Jerry was the all-conference shortstop for a couple of years, and he got out a year after me, and he went right into the minor leagues. He signed with the Milwaukee Braves. And he said that when he got to minor league camp, and the players who had been out, up in, in the minor leagues for a couple of years, Jerry was new to this, they started talking about this guy, Dalkowski. And Jerry said, what do you mean? The guy said, well, I played, I was in South Dakota in the A-League, and well, we had to face him, and he threw so hard. Fortunately, he threw mostly outside uh, outside the plate rather than in. And, and Jerry said that these guys all swore he, he threw like over 105 miles per hour. There was no way to measure it in those days, you know, in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. But they were in such awe of Dalkowski. And finally, Jerry saw him didn't bat against him in, in the two years that he was in the minors, but he... Uh, you know, he was aware of it, and he said the guy really was. And, of course, I saw him. I saw Dalkowski uh, in the spring of 1963. You know, it's it's an incredible to think of this, but, you know, one of the things that always is amazing for baseball is, and it's it's still to this day, Aroldis Chapman being able to throw 104 or whatever it might be. Um, Randy Johnson, the idea of being able to throw over 100 miles an hour. And here's this gentleman who decades ago, Many people believe still to be the fastest pitcher ever, 
Um, but it, it's so incredible because there are things you can and can't teach. You might be able to teach strength and velocity, but you can't exactly right. teach accuracy. And that was one of Dolkowski's issues. Well, that coaches all say that you can't you can't coach speed or you can't mm-hmm. coach height or you know all the all the great cliches. But in this case, that's pretty much all that he had. I mean, not only I mean we've all seen pitchers come along who throw so hard, but their their lifestyle or their personality or or their intelligence doesn't match what's in their arm or or their bat or whatever it is. I mean. You know, Matt Harvey, what happened to him? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, and I, I, I don't claim to know. But you see people who are just sensational for a year or three. And then Steve Blass, my friend Jerry was talking mm-hmm. about Steve Blass, who was sort of in the majors at a time when Jerry was aspiring to it. He said the guy, one year he's like uh, helping to win the the, the, the the World Series and the All-Star, and the next year he can't find home plate. But in Dachowski's case, he didn't he didn't even have the yips or or – he didn't get confused. He didn't lose the motion. He just was a, uh, a ne'er-do-well in every sense of the word, except when he'd throw the ball and it would go, you know, 105 or whatever it was. And you said you had a chance to see him. When you think back and you, and you look at him and you see how baseball's progressed, is he the, the, was he the fastest, the hardest thrower ever that you've, that you've seen? Well, I'd, ha- I'd have to say one... I think maybe I only saw him throw one inning. I can't mm-hmm. find my news. I was working for Newsday at the time, and I wasn't covering the game. It was a Saturday night game in uh, Miami Stadium, and I was with the Mets. They were down on the north and uh, the, the south coast for a couple of days, and the Yankees had the game at night. And I went down there. I think on my own. I don't believe I was writing that night. I don't believe I wrote afterward because I was catching up with the Mets the next day somewhere. But I just want to see the Yankees and see. So there's Dalkowski coming into. I don't even think he started the game. I think he came in in the you know third or fourth inning or whatever it was, and he pitched maybe one inning, maybe. Then he hurt his elbow somehow or other. He hurt his elbow in that game. So I saw him on the last, you know, the, the last time he threw that hard. He stayed around for a couple more years just because they kept trying to revive him. Right. So it's really hard to say. The lights were terrible there. Um, and I remember, you know, all you had to do if you're used to major league lights, in spring training you see some pretty bad A-leagues a- in those days. Yeah. Particularly, you see some pretty bad lighting situations in the minor leagues. But I don't, I don't think that we looked, we looked at the night and how bad it was and you, you couldn't see anybody. And for him to come in throwing as fast as he did, and the Yankees, who of course had – had won the World Series, had uh, won the pennant the year before. No, they had, they had won the, they had won the World Series, mm-hmm. and they they were perennial champions, and they were so confident. They had all these all these monsters, and I just remember, they were waving at the ball. It was very clear they didn't want any part of it. They had, they had nothing to gain. It was already mid uh, mid March. And the season was going to start in a couple of weeks, and they weren't getting hurt for anything. So right. they were all just waving at it. And then when the when they all struck out, I think it was uh, three up and three down. I'm sure it was. They got back to the dugout, and the the guys were making fun of them in the dugout. And then after the game, I did go down to the Yankee. Dukowski was nowhere around. I remember right. that he he had gone to you know for his care of his elbow, whatever it was. So I didn't get to talk to him that night. But I remember the Yankees, and we're talking about Roger Maris 
uh, Johnny Blanchard, who was a you know regular but or second string catcher, but he was, and uh, I, I said Cleet Boyer was there, and Elston Howard, who was one of the you know most inside guys on on the team by then, and they were just making fun of each other. The three guys who'd gone up and gone down. Like, did you see you the way you waved? You were standing so far. You know, classic. You've been around ball players, professionals, oh, yeah. and and you know how how vicious, how vicious, but understandable. These guys all speak the same language, uh, which is which is sarcasm and and putting people down. But it's it's part of their professionalism, and uh, and they all admitted, yeah, I chickened out. I wasn't about to get you get hit by that guy. Well, so it was it was a phenomenon. I, I love it because there's this art, and, and again, Steve Dalkowski passed away uh, last week at the age of 80 due to the coronavirus pandemic, but I was reading through all these articles and people remembering him, and then articles from further back about him as a player and things like that, and you had one in the New York Times in July of 2009 when he was inducted right. into the Shrine of the Eternals, and right. what I love is the second, um, or, or the third paragraph, you're talking about Dalkowski and Roger Maris and how they met in, in that game in, in March in 1963. Right. And, right. and the line here is, when they met, Maris was theoretically standing near home plate in Miami, uh-huh. Miami but his fanny was more or less in the Bahamas. And if that doesn't well, give you a description as I, to how I think far... I, got, I think I got the geography right, because <laughs> a, left-handed, a left-handed hitter would be facing east, the way most ballplayers are. Our ballparks are configured, and uh, and I, thank goodness I got it right. I didn't have him facing the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> but I mean, that, that's just the the most pure of descriptions. Is to just and you can imagine Roger Maris just leaning over as far away to be able to bail out if a, if a hundred and ten mile an hour comes at him, yeah. and he doesn't yeah. want to. And, and that's the thing with this legend is, is the fact that it's not just Roger Maris. There's stories of how. Ted Williams just stood in there for two pitches and was like, nope, I'm out. Arguably one of the greatest hitters right. of all time. Well, he, uh, Ted, Ted wasn't fooling around. He just wanted to see it up close, and he, he didn't want to try and swing at it. I mean, plus, I think he was not playing anymore, but, mm-hmm. but even even at that, most guys would have, I mean, I'm sure that Roger Maris, if he could have, would have peeled off a couple of hundreds and, and found some kid from Double A AA or Triple A on the Yankee dugout that night and said, "Kid, one, how would you like to go up and hit for me?" <laughs> but Ralph Ralph Houck was not going to, you know, was not going to put up with it. Although, you know, I wouldn't have blamed him if he did. But I, I don't think Dalkowski started the game because if they knew Dalkowski was going to start the game, they would have started their farmhands, um, you know, Roger Repos or somebody, um, you know, Artie um, Artie Lopez or you know, one of those, some of the subs, and. Uh, in that case, they wouldn't have had to face him. We're talking with George Vesey, the former New York Times uh, sports columnist here, talking about Steve Dalkowski, uh, the the real life Nuclelouche, if you want to call him that. Um, you know, this is a man who, again, the legend is there of, of how hard he threw and spent years in the Orioles minor league system. Never actually got to the majors, and for all the 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 skepticism or whatever what what have you regarding his ability to throw the ball hard, this was still a man with with some demons in, in him. Um, not only in his playing days, but but later on, and, and it took some time for him to, to start to really exercise those. Yeah, absolutely. Now he had come up in the Baltimore system. Baltimore had loaded itself with great young pitchers starting in the late fifties. And I made a list the other day. There were about six or seven of Jerry Walker, um, Milt Pappas, Steve Barber, um, Chuck Estrada, uh, and Bo Belinsky, who mm. had a couple of quite good years. I think pitched a no-hitter or something uh, in, in, his, in his one good year. And uh, all these guys were cr- 
stories about how they'd go down for breakfast in the minor league uh, cafeteria, and they'd be drinking uh, from water glasses, but the clear stuff they were drinking was not water at all, but it was vodka. And that was just, just the way those guys rolled. Most of them managed to have good careers or even terrific careers in the major leagues. Dalkowski was the one in six or seven that just, you know, once he was on that pathway of drinking, mm-hmm. and as I, you know, I have a, I have a lot of friends who are AA members and, you know, talk to me. I did a book with Bob Welch, the baseball yep. player who was a, an alcoholic and, uh, you know, reforming, but they say it found me. I knew that this was what, this was, this was my thing, you know, when, when they start to drink. And, and for Dalkowski, I don't think he ever beat it. I think they finally got him into a, a home when he was like 60 years old. His sister found him. He was picking, uh, you know, picking vegetables out in California somewhere. And she got him back into Connecticut and got him into a home. And he'd been there by the time I did that column on him in 2009. Mm-hmm. He'd been in this home for 10 or 15 years. And the man who ran it, a uh, very nice man, I only talked to him on the phone, but he talked about how they knew what they had. They knew this guy had a, had a backstory. In fact, they'd even tried to connect him with the Orioles at one point, you know, taking a bunch of guys down by bus to a game or something. But Dokowski just, you know, he discovered out me. Some people, some, some people discover alcohol at 10 or 12 or something like that. Well, whatever it was, he was just um, addicted to it, mm-hmm. couldn't get away from it. And probably baseball wasn't sophisticated enough. I mean, they, it, it was still 10 years, 20 years away from ballplayers going into rehab. You never heard right. of rehab. But then uh, Porter, uh, the, the catcher for the Kansas City, and my friend Bob Welch, and Lou Johnson, uh, who's, who's, God bless him, I believe is still alive, and he, he got through the Meadows. So ballplayers in the late 70s and early 80s were starting to go through um, the treatment center and realize what they had going on, but nobody ever reached Dalkowski. They probably had him on medication in the home, and they wouldn't allow him to drink, and et cetera, et cetera. But it, it, uh, it was a disease, and he had it. And you almost wonder, too, because you mentioned it earlier, prior, you know, in that game in 1963, he had hurt his elbow, and that was pretty much, I mean, he was able to hang on for a right. little bit longer in the minors, but it seems as though if he had stayed healthy, 63 could have been that year that he made the majors, um, based on all accounts, but you almost wonder how that could have changed things for him potentially. I mean, who knows if that's he gets that call and, and, and he's able to find a way to beat it, or, or maybe it just takes a, an even worse turn for him yeah, at, that, I, I at would, that point. I would say that it, it could very well have gotten worse because for him to be, even if he'd made a major league roster for a while, and the other players were merciless, and they, many of them in those days had uh, drank a lot Nobody mm-hmm. knew the difference, and it's quite likely that he would have been caught up with the the, the, the the most cowboy of teammates and going out places at night and pulling stuff yeah. like drinking vodka out of a water glass and all of that. So I, I, I'd like to think it could have turned out better, but if you look at his record from the time he got into the minor leagues, or you can, anybody can find that online, baseball reference, mm-hmm. they have a minor league section, and you can find his, his statistics are in the number of strikeouts he had everywhere he went, but so were his bases on balls, and, and his one-loss percentage is atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he'd, he'd be in some some team, and he'd be one in seven, and he'd wear out his welcome, and some manager would say, I ain't, ain't going to try and manage that guy. He's crazy. And they'd move him somewhere else, and they'd have old, old Pat 
happy guy. Pitching coaches would try and help him along, but he was just beyond the pale. And he just, let's put it this way, if the most, the most optimistic thing to say about him is that he was 20 years ahead of his time, that he didn't get the care. Uh, Bob Welch was drinking um, at the ballpark, starting fights before the game even began uh, out of his nose, in 1979, after pitching in the World Series, and uh, the, the Dodgers were connected. The, the parent club was sponsored by Union Oil, which had a terrific uh, employee program. The Dodgers were hooked into that, mm-hmm. and the, Yankees, the, the, the Dodgers called Bob in after the season. Al Campanis, my, my friend Al Campanis, wonderful guy, and Don Newcomb, and I, maybe Lasorda. No, Lasorda, he, he didn't believe it. But these guys knew him because he was an alcoholic himself. God bless him. And they said to him, Bob, we see what you're doing. Uh, Nukum said, you know, son, that I had to, I had to pull you out of a hallway in the hotel. You had your money in your, your wallet was in your hand, and you were sleeping in the hallway outside your room. And I got you into that room, and I made sure you were safe. And you, you can't be going on like they scared the hell out of him. Mm-hmm. And he went, and he, he was a convert. You know, he, he took yeah. it seriously. As far as I know, never drank again for the. You know, twenty odd years that he had left to him, and uh, it, 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 that just wasn't happening when Dalkowski came along. Right, and, and, it's, and you even mentioned it in, in that piece you wrote in two thousand nine because they wanted to room him in the minors with Joe Altabelli, um, a, a veteran uh, presence who who was hoping to turn him around. But as as you mentioned in there, it's hard to to change a roommate who's never in the room, which was which was um, Dolkowski right, throughout right. his minor league career. I just went and pulled up his stats, by the way, uh, from Baseball Reference, and in his nine years in the minors, 46-80 and 80 was his overall record, 1,236 walks, 1,324 strikeouts, right. and 956 innings. So, right. uh, you know, it, it was impressive. The control wasn't there, and certainly, obviously, the, the off-the-field issues – uh, kept him away. But, um, you know, one of the things that's, that's interesting is baseball is, is all about these stories and you can connect throughout uh, history, uh, you know, these great players. And the fact that we've today talking about a gentleman who never made the majors, yet we're talking about his connections to Ted Williams and Roger Maris and Cal Ripken Sr. Um, and Earl right. Weaver and, and, and all these these legends of the game. Uh, right. about it, that's just an incredible part about the fa- the fabric of, of baseball as a whole. Right. You could slow baseball down because of the, the individual plays. Everything is an individual mm-hmm. play. And who is where, and you can trace people's careers much more than you can. I mean, the careers mean, are, are much more interesting than in football. You find out that some old guard was playing one more year with another team, and I didn't know that. But in right. baseball, somebody, somebody comes along and has a good month I mean, think of all the players that have come on to a team late in the season. You know, mm-hmm. Pete Ramos coming to the Yankees in 1960, uh, I want to say 1964, and helping them win the pennant. Couldn't pitch in the World Series because he came too late. But you think about all these, and you can slow it down. You can say, why didn't Ramos? Because he didn't join them till after September 1st, or whatever it was. That that baseball is unique in that way. It, it's incredible, and it's, and it's what makes the game so so much fun. Uh, we're talking with George Vesey, the New York Times sports columnist here on Caught Listening, discussing Steve Dalkowski. And let's get to what kind of made him him famous as well. And this is something that I don't think people realize, at least the younger generation certainly didn't realize it, until maybe this past week, uh, 10 days with, with his passing. And that is that uh, he became essentially 
the inspiration for Nuke Lelouch of Bull Durham fame. And not only did he become that, but kind of the Orioles were kind of the, the makeshift for this Durham Bulls for Bull Durham because Ron Shelton, uh, as you explained in the piece in 2009, a former farmhand who didn't play with Delkowski, but he remembers this relationship between Delkowski and Joe Altabelli. And then right. Shelton goes out and writes a screenplay that includes a, you know, wild pitcher who both wild mentally and wild with his arm, but has great talent. And then a wise old, you know, career minor league catcher. And thus, you know, Crash Davis, Nuke and Bull Durham is born. Right. Well, as, as someone who has made a living and, and, and had a great time as a, as a journalist, I have such admiration for people who can say, yeah, those two guys, that relationship or, or the way that fits into it, I could write a whole screenplay about it. And Shelton, bless his heart, he was able to take these two characters and put it into a framework that he knew very well, which was, which was minor league baseball, mm-hmm. um, with, with baseball glittering, major leagues glittering up ahead. It, it's interesting. I've often wondered, I never talked to Shelton about this when I, when I did talk to him for the, for the article, the column, but he called, he, he had players using the phrase, the show. And yeah. this was, you know, whenever that movie came out, 1994 or something like that in the late 90s. And I never heard the expression when it started, when people started to talk about it. I saw the movie. I mean, who wouldn't love a movie with Susan Sarandon? Right. But, but the, but the, but the, and, and, and Costner. And yeah. I remember hearing the phrase, the show, and I never heard it. I mean, I love uh, Clubhouse, and you've been around ballplayers. When you go into, uh, you know, and I, I don't know whether it was true in, in the, with the Ducks or not, but I know certainly in the, in the major leagues, when a guy is cut, they say he died. And mm-hmm. Jerry, my friend Jerry, one day got cut, and everybody said Jerry died. And I remember sitting in the Yankee dugout in the uh, you know, late, around 1970, and, you know, somebody Stan Bonson or somebody somebody wandered through and they said, what happened to so-and-so? He died, you know, and the, yeah. and the guy was gone, packing his locker and crying and out the door. So so I just never heard the phrase, the show, and not my business, he can invent his own cliche for that setting. But the rest of it, the idea of this, you know, baseball Annie and um, a wise old, you know, classic. I, I knew Al Tabelli when he was a player. I remember mm-hmm. him being around when I first started to cover and as a manager, he was terrific, and I'd forgotten that he was the he was the link to uh, to Dalkowski. But there are, there are so many people like that around. Last year, um, uh, Buck, who was with the uh, the catcher, mm-hmm. was talking about Kurt Flood, and he was he was lecturing, and I can't remember how it came up came up in the context of of a contract. I guess it was the the the, the pitcher that that signed with the Yankees, uh, Cole. And he yeah. said, I hope Cole understands because who got him there? Who got him to where all this money? And he, he was asking guys, do you know who Kurt Flood was? And it, it was so perfect. The idea, here's a career second-string catcher. And then I asked Christy Acker, who's a friend of mine. She, mm-hmm. she covers baseball for the Daily News. And uh, she said, no, when Buck was with the Mets, he did that to me. We were on a bus somewhere, or we were going somewhere with, with you know, the team and the Mets, or in a dugout, and he said to me, do you know, I thought, oh, I knew who Kurt Flood was, but the point was that it takes a wise old head like that, and very often you'll find, like in football, 
The offensive linemen are the wise old heads because nobody talks to them much. And in baseball, it's the catchers. They yep. see the whole game out in front of them. And, and when you can talk to I'm just trying to think of some of the great old catchers that I met, you know, years when I was breaking in. You know, John Roseborough and Earl Batty and mm-hmm. guys who've been everywhere, Elrod Hendrick. And, and, they, you know, and their stories were wonderful. And that's the beautiful part about that position, too. I mean, it's just so much fun just listening to catchers talk, and it's part of the reason why you have some who become great managers. You know, I mean, look at Girardi, yeah. look at Sosha, look at, you know, look, look at th- throughout history, uh, the, the great catchers. Yeah. The one question I always have with Bull Durham, and I think I, I don't know how many people have raised it now, is, well, there was a real-life Nukalouche, there was a real-life Crash Davis. I want to know who the real-life Annie Savoy was, but that, that's, oh. uh, you know. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think you lack for them. In baseball, you certainly I mean, do not. I, I certainly, certainly, as a writer, you wouldn't know anything about that. But if you observe a little bit, there's a there's a new book out, and darn if I, I can't remember the name, and it might be Emily something is her name, and she's written a book about. Oh, I'm sorry, it's called the Cactus League, and it's about ball players and baseball annies and the people that make their living in and around baseball in Arizona spring training mm. it's arizona is the place and all these women and the players wives and then there are the baseball annies who are, who are obviously sit in different sections and uh, and and the players have their own their own problems and you know not not just including women trouble but um, you know gambling and whatever and it really does touch on the the i can't say the dark side of it but the other side of baseball right there's a different side to it, especially at the minor league level, and especially uh, you know as as portrayed in that movie. And I think it brought a lot of things to light that maybe people didn't understand about minor league baseball and off the field at that point in time. Uh, George, we're, we're coming up towards a, a point in the show where uh, we let our listeners uh, get involved and ask some questions, and so I'd love to. And we just kind of give some quick hitting responses back and forth here. So I'd, I'd like to ask this first one that came to us outside of Steve Dolkowski, is there another legendary figure in baseball that maybe the mainstream people haven't heard of? Hmm. Um, so, so you're asking, you're, you're asking me. Um, yeah. Well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, everybody talks about players who had so much talent and didn't realize it, mm-hmm. uh, didn't realize it in, the, in their careers. They just didn't make it. And other guys that go on. So, so, there is that evaluation of somebody who had so much more to give. I mean, people talk. I'm trying. I'm trying to think about a, a, a legendary. I mean, the, the Mets had the Mets had a guy in spring training one year, Jerry Hinsley, who was like 20 years old, and he threw really fast. He was from uh, New Mexico or Arizona somewhere. Nice-looking kid, about 20 years old, and he could. He wanted up pitching for the Mets for for Casey for like a year or two. Casey called him the youth of America, but even though he had this reputation that he never he never lived up to it. Grover Powell, who actually uh, pitched a, a like a, a two-hit shutout in uh, Connie Mack Stadium one year, and they and then he never could match it again, and he was out of the major leagues by the end of the season. And Casey loved the game he pitched, and you know, again, the youth of America. But these people have a legend to them that one day they were able to do this or able to do that. Um, and, then, and then some of the legends are true or not true, and they're used to frighten people. For example, Bob Veal, V-E-A-L-E, was a, a left-handed pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates. I believe he pitched in the 1960 World Series against the Yankees. And when the Mets were formed in 1962, Veal was still in the league, but he wasn't doing as well. And 
one of the guys on the Mets who had been with the Pirates, and it might have been my friend Joe Christopher, uh, who was a, a, you know, an outfielder who never really got much of a chance, but Joe is a, is a great guy. And somebody told a story in the Mets dugout, 1962, and said, he's blind. He can't see. You watch him. He, he, he wears these big glasses and he can't see. And somebody said, Veal was wa- warming up, and he took out this big bandana, and he rubbed his glasses, and he kind of stumbled off the mound, and he was pretending like he was blind and stuff. And the guy, I'm not, I'm not going to swing against him. The thing, now, he, he couldn't have been blind because he wound up having a, a reasonable career in the majors. Mm-hmm. But all the, all the lines that go on, the, the lies and the, the make-believe stuff, or things to scare people, or you know, ball players, what do they have time to do? Half the game, they're sitting in the dugout, or you know, or in the bullpen, yep. and they're making up stories. So. Yeah. I'm sure there are more. I'm just not coming up with somebody who's that everybody talked about either in a in a positive way or a negative way. But so many players don't make it in the majors, uh, and yet and yet they come up and people are saying can't miss. I mean, the Yankees signed a guy named Brian Taylor. He was their first big bonus baby uh, of the, of a new era, and he never made it anywhere near the major leagues. Yeah. Well, and then I want to ask you this too because. You know, part of this was the whole inspiration, you know, Steve being the inspiration for Nuke Lelouch. And yet, you know, for me personally, that movie to me is still more about Crash Davis and this veteran trying to hang on and eventually deciding it's time to go into the next phase of his career, which is managing. And I've always wondered this, you know, is there a guy like that, a a career minor league home run guy or, or, you know, just a, a great presence and is there anyone you could think of that, that kind of resembles what Crash Davis was in the movie? Hmm. I mean, Crash Davis was a great minor league player, uh, and I don't think he ever got to the majors. Is that, is that correct? Is your mm-hmm. memory? So he'd never been up there. Right. I mean, and, and there are players like that that never quite, I mean, we're wondering now whether, uh, you know, the, the, the Mets guy, the football player, whether he's ever going to yeah. give him a chance. And now it's, now it's much more show business and right. money invested and all of that. But, you know, there were, there were players. I know that um, Steve Greenberg, who is the son of Hank Greenberg. Yeah. Now, Steve, Steve was a, a terrific player at Yale, um, a very smart, very astute, and he played in the, in the minors. And the Tigers never, I believe it was the Tigers, maybe, no, 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 couldn't have been because that was his dad's team. But the team never brought him up. Steve never got to the major leagues. And in AAA, he certainly had, if somebody had wanted to, they could have. And there was a guy I, I, I know for a fact from, uh, from my part of the woods in Jamaica, Queens, named George Califatis, who was a terrific player. And I can't remember where he went to college, but he, too, had good AAA. I mean, there's no reason why George couldn't have gotten 10 or 20 games at the end of a season. But the team that had him just never brought him up, and, the, and the, he kind of wound up never playing, and he became an agent and passed very young. But but you think about people like that. You see so many fringe players coming up in, in, in early in the season or late in September when the rosters yeah. traditionally have been, have been loaded with players, and they get a chance to play. The Orioles last year brought up a guy, you know, minor league guy. He was in late 20s, and they let him play eight or ten games in the outfield uh, just because, and that's right. a very nice thing to do. But there, there are some who never make it, and yet you would have thought they would. But how could yeah. you not bring Steve Greenberg, uh, Hank Greenberg's son, with impeccable credentials? Like yeah. now, now the guy's making a ton of money putting deals together for 
stadiums and you know players and all of that. But how could you not? I mean, it's almost cruel and stupid, but but nevertheless. Yeah. Now, Steve. Uh, let's see here. Triple A in in for four of his of his five years uh, in the right. minors was in Triple A and, right. and hit. Right. Uh, 277. So, you know, it, it, right. in those. So uh, completely, right. completely agree there. Uh, Mr. Vesey, we appreciate the time so much. And before I let you go, uh, you know, how are you doing? How's the family? How's it with all of this that's going on right now? How are you guys all doing up there? Well, I appreciate you asking. Thank you very much. We have a, uh, we're, we're living in our same old big old house that we've been in for 50 years or whatever it is. And um, we're, we're fine. My wife is way ahead of things like that. She knows a lot about medicine and science. Mm. When she started to hear about this in January, you know, there were rumors out. The, the only person who missed it was the, the, the guy at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but he's got more, he's got mm. more important things to do, like, uh, you know, kiting, kiting money for himself and his friends. But my wife said, there's something wrong. We, we've got to be careful. And she was already saying, yeah, maybe we won't go to this restaurant or do that or be careful on the subway. Remember to wash your hands when you're going to have lunch with your friends. And I got I got to the point where by February, she's saying, you know, this is real. This is coming out of mm-hmm. Wuhan, China, and blah, 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 blah. So we've been in for, you know, since essentially since mid-February. Went shopping at Costco one day, and she said, um, you know, this place is too crowded and people out shopping like they know something. And uh, so we've been in. So thank you. We, we're fine. We have... Three kids, they all have great spouses, and uh, we have five grandchildren. All of them are healthy. Uh, all of them are observing. Uh, one, one I hope, is she's not living at home right now. But the fact is we've had, um, we, we're lucky, we're blessed, and uh, everybody takes it seriously. No, Nobody's being a cowboy or a cowgirl that I know about. Well, we, we certainly are, are happy to hear that, and we certainly appreciate you spending some time with us and, and, and remembering uh, a legend of baseball, um, despite him not ever making the major leagues. George Vesey, former uh, New York Times sports columnist, and and uh, more importantly, at least for this show and for this host, a fellow Hofstra University alum. Sir, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Go Hofstra. It's George Vesey, uh, legendary New York Times sports writer, and uh, we were so grateful to have him on and be able to talk with him uh, here this week on the show. And as always, we thank you guys for being a part of the show. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, share us with your friends and family. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts on Google and Apple Play, Spreaker.com, Stitcher.com, iHeartRadio, and of course, PublicHouseMedia.org. And uh, check us out on social media. Be a part of the show by submitting questions. You can check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Caught Listening by Public House Media or email the show, CaughtListeningPHM at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter as well, at Chris Heimel, C-H-R-I-S-H-E-I-M-A-L-L. Month of May, we're going to do something fun. It's going to be the month of the fan. We're going to talk about the best traditions, the worst traditions, the best experiences, and all that great stuff. If you want to be a part of the show, you know how. Just find us on social media, Caught Listening by Public House Media. Till next week, I'm Christian Heimel, and you have been Caught Listening.